Greetings, everyone, and welcome to another episode of Every Square Inch. My name is Robert Cunningham, and this podcast is the main public thought outlet of a new ministry we have formed called Christ for Kentucky. This is the second part of a series I'm doing explaining our organization, its vision, mission, work, and so forth. So in the first episode, I explained the name of our organization, Christ for Kentucky. And now in this episode, I want to go into detail of what exactly our ministry will be doing. I said that we are establishing a work devoted to Christ's promised redemption here in Kentucky. But that vision will admittedly die the death of vaunted idealism if it's not fleshed out in real practicalities. And that is what I want to detail in this episode. And I think the best way to do that is to uh, simply unpack our mission statement, much like I unpacked our name in the last episode. So this is what Christ for Kentucky is all about. Public theology and strategy for the common good of the commonwealth. That's what we do. We are a ministry that offers public theology and strategy for the common good of the commonwealth. Let me unpack that for us. When we pray, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven, what we are praying for is a new world. Or maybe a better word is not new, but renew. We are not asking for a world altogether new. We are asking for this world renewed. We are praying for the world as we know it to become the world as we ought to know it. And I will flesh out uh, that theological concept in an upcoming podcast. But for now, what does that require on a practical level? I have spent a lot of time researching and thinking through the idea of societal change. I've looked at it from a biblical lens, a theological lens, a sociological lens. I've thought about this subject perhaps as much as any other. And this ministry, in many ways, is just the outlet for me to enact the uh, convictions and applications I've made from all of that thought work. And bottom line, Effectual change requires three things, and all three are represented in our mission, public theology, and strategy for the common good of the commonwealth. So the first is public theology. Cultural change begins in the arena of ideas. It does not end there, as we will see in a moment, but it begins by shaping the public imagination with robust Christian thought, and that's what we mean when we say public theology. Typically, people associate theological work with the study of Scripture, biblical theology, or the summation of Scripture into a coherent doctrines, systematic theology. But there is a theological discipline that, historically speaking, was central to the Christian project, but admittedly is now often neglected, and that is public theology. Public theology is the application of our theology to a cultural context, applying the Christian worldview to societal life. So there was a time when the clergy voice was a significant public voice. When tragedy struck or controversies arose or important public decisions were being made, people actually wanted to hear what pastors and Christian thought leaders had to say. Now, I admit those days are uh, nearly gone. The Christian perspective has largely been privatized with 
little to no uh, public implications. Why is that? I know what evangelicals are going to say. They will chalk it up to persecution. The the Christian perspective is now marginalized at best or quote-unquote canceled at worst by our increasingly secular society. And while I do not deny the rise in cultural hostility toward Christianity, I just don't think that's the whole story here. Before we place all the blame on external persecution, I think there is an internal critique that needs to be considered. Perhaps it's an active cancellation from the world, or perhaps we're just not really good at it. Perhaps people aren't considering our voice because our voice isn't a compelling one to consider. Mark Knowles' landmark critique of evangelical thought, the scandal of the evangelical mind, I believe has been proven true. The long history of anti-intellectualism within evangelical Christianity has harmed our public witness. Where is the serious, thoughtful, courageous, courteous, well-researched, charitable, critical, evangelical thought for the greater world to consider? I look around and, um, speaking candidly, I think it's lacking. But from my personal experience, that doesn't mean it's not still possible. I have written many op-eds for arguably our state's most influential paper, the Lexington Herald Leader. I have written cultural commentaries for our state's most popular website, Kentucky Sports Radio, which if you're outside Kentucky, I know you're laughing at that. But yes, that's that's the most popular website, and um, I was able to write religious and cultural commentary for them. Um, I've spoken in public forums. I've spoken on uh, university campuses in Kentucky. I have uh, spoken at and hosted conferences, and this podcast itself has gained a public audience. I, the reason I'm saying that is I, I have been engaged in public dialogue, and I have not shied from controversial public topics, race, sexuality, gender. I'm not afraid to go there. And in my anecdotal experience, our world is not just interested, but even receptive to an honest, thoughtful, uh, kind, but courageous Christian perspective, which I'm not saying I do perfectly. That's my aim, but I try to do it well, but I'm not saying I'm doing it perfectly. But the point I'm making is that in my experience, the paranoia of the pundits is greatly overstated. Of course, I've gotten nasty emails and social media messages, but by and large, it's been well-received. It's led to uh, really uh, thoughtful dialogue and friendship, and I'm just trying to say I think there is still room in our society for thoughtful public theology. Now, in my former role as a pastor, I was able to dabble in public thought, but in my new role, I'm going to have the space to give myself to it full-time. And by the way, for those wondering, because I have gotten this question, this podcast, not only will it continue, it's going to be the main outlet of that thought work. I started this as a hobby to scratch an itch uh, for public theology, but I recorded irregularly whenever I had uh, free time or something burning I wanted to say. But now you can expect regular content Uh, from this podcast. I'll be doing uh, public writing and speaking in other venues, but this will serve as the main hub of my thought content. Uh, with With my only caveat is that 
uh, for your own expectations. I am committed to warm takes, not hot takes. And here's what I mean by that. Uh, A dirty little secret in the uh, content production world is that you have to constantly crank out hot take after hot take to keep up with the breakneck speed of our news cycle. That's the price to pay if you want to monetize your content. But I have intentionally made the decision not to monetize my content, um, instead asking people to donate funds to support our ministry, which frees me up uh, for thoughtful, warm takes, is what I'm calling it. So there will be times, the reason I'm saying that is there will be times when I take a week or two off from the podcast to research, think, pray, and prepare a series of podcasts on different topics. But for the most part, you can expect uh, a weekly podcast rhythm, and then I'm going to take those podcasts and also publish them in a more uh, concise and precise, well-worded, written form on our blog as well. And this is the part of our ministry that I think will benefit those outside Kentucky. I I recognize that our audience extends way beyond the state of Kentucky, and while my focus will be on Kentucky— I do hope and pray our content will continue to be a resource for you as well. A perfect example of this is in the aftermath of George Floyd's tragedy, I recorded a series on race in America. And in that discussion, I traced the history of racism, slavery, segregation, and so forth down to Kentucky specifically. But at the same time, I heard from folks all over the world, frankly, that said the series was still incredibly beneficial to them. So my public thought will have a Kentucky lens, but I think it will still benefit listeners and readers outside Kentucky. At least that's my prayer. So our mission begins with public theology, but, and I cannot emphasize how important this is, it does not end there. If I simply wanted to do more public thought leadership, I could have remained in my role as a local church pastor tweaked my job description even further, which would not have been fair to my church, but I could have created more space to do more research, writing, public discourse, and so forth. But I have become increasingly cynical about the deficiency of thought leadership by itself. Do ideas really change things in any substantial way? My concern especially in this information age of ours, is that ideas are just out there in the ether for content monetization. They get caught up in the algorithm echo chamber, tickle the ears of consumers, reinforce previously held convictions, never truly digested or actively applied, and are quickly discarded for the next hot take that is fast approaching. That changes nothing. And that was the frustration I was feeling with my public thought work in the past. So for example, when Roe was overturned, I recorded a podcast with this vision of Kentucky becoming much more than an anti-abortion state, but a pro-life sanctuary state. And it got a lot of attention. I had legislators and and donors and churches and key leaders in our state reaching out saying, I listened, I'm excited, let's make it happen. And I couldn't. I had the space to put the idea out there, but not the space to work on implementation. 
and ideas disconnected from strategic implementation remain inconsequential. So Christ for Kentucky is going to offer public theology and strategy. When you merge compelling public theology and intentional public strategy, then things can actually change. And that's our plan. Now, what exactly is that strategy? What's our strategic plan? Well, before I get to the strategy, let me tell you who we hope and pray will benefit from that strategy. All that Christ for Kentucky does is for the lost and least of Kentucky. So we are prioritizing those the Bible commands we prioritize, those outside the Christian faith and the least of these, as Jesus refers to them. Theologians define the least as the quartet of the vulnerable. So throughout Scripture, God's people were commanded to care for really four groups, the widowed, the orphan, the immigrant, and the poor. Now, those are generic categories. For example, I would include um, single moms in the category of widows. I would include uh, not just the economically distressed, but also uh, social outcasts in the category of the poor. So you get the point. These are general categories. But our ministry will be successful if it is benefiting the lost and least of Kentucky. Now, the reason why I'm saying that up front is because when I unpack our strategy, I don't want anyone to think that it is a ministry for quote-unquote cultural elites. It is not. But here is the reality of cultural science. The plausibility of change belongs to those who hold cultural capital. Evangelicals tend to have a grassroots view of transformation. Sociology has proven that isn't how it works. For example, if you looked at the polling data on gender ideology, you will find that a large majority of people disagree with much of what is taking place in our society. They do not believe that transgender women should have access to private female spaces. They do not agree that it is healthy to transition youth at a young age. They do not agree that gender language should be so aggressively imposed upon us. That's what the grassroots data shows. Well, if so, why does everyone feel the pressure to self-censor and conform to a view that according to data isn't a popular view? What are we to make of this? How can an ideology without grassroots support become so firmly fixed within societal life? Because those with cultural capital and power subscribe to that ideology. And ultimately, it is these cultural elites who determine what is culturally normative. The only exception to this cultural dynamic is times of revival. So there are these uh, blessed moments of awakening that are so organically overwhelming that they do reshape society in many ways. But for the most part, the power of cultural formation belongs to those who hold cultural power financial power, academic power, legislative power, institutional power, artistic power, uh, media power, maybe better in our age, social media power. These are the ones with formative influence. And so while we pray and labor for revival, we must also do what evangelicals are notoriously poor at doing, thinking strategically about cultural capital. Now, I know the critique before it's offered. 
this doesn't feel like the Christian way. The kingdom of God is upside down from the ways of this world. So whereas the world functions via power, the kingdom comes via weakness. Jesus says, blessed are the poor in spirit, the meek, the merciful, the persecuted, and so forth. God uses the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. I say amen to all of these things. Yes, amen. So we are left with this tension then. Sociology tells us the world changes via power. The Bible tells us the world changes via the Beatitudes. What are we to make of this? Well, how about those in power living out the Beatitudes? How about the redemption of power via subversive kingdom ethics? Power can be exploitive. Matter of fact, power is normally exploitive, which is why we have a reasonable aversion to it. But it doesn't have to work that way. Privilege can be leveraged for the underprivileged. Wealth can be leveraged for the poor. Power can be leveraged for the weak. Security can be leveraged for the vulnerable. This is the way of our Savior, who is the embodiment of subversive power. All authority in heaven and on earth belongs to Jesus, and yet all his authority was exercised for helpless sinners like us. When Jesus commenced his ministry, he did so with these words, the Spirit of the Lord is upon me. So that's power. That's omnipotent power. But for what purpose? He has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed. So messianic power for the poor, the captives, the blind, the oppressed. That model of subversive strength is our strategy. Networking, collaborating, challenging the leadership of Kentucky to embody and practice a kingdom-down form of subversive leadership, leveraging power and privilege for the common good of Kentucky. This is how things change. When Africans were enslaved by Western power, they certainly needed some measure of anti-slavery grassroots support, which was there to a small degree. But what our enslaved brothers and sisters really needed was a Wilberforce. They need somebody in the halls of power to hear their cry and actually do something about it in a sacrificial way. And what we want to be is that prophetic voice to the leaders and institutions of Kentucky. Let me tell you when this was really cemented for me. As I said in my previous episode, I came very close to leaving Kentucky for another calling. But one of the things I couldn't shake was that I'm born and raised in Kentucky. I have connections throughout Kentucky. And by God's sheer providence, he has positioned me as a voice that uh, many leaders in our state listen to. That positionality is no small thing. And I would, I would have been stepping away from so much cultural capital. And after turning it down and deciding to stay, I was meeting with a pastor who has faithfully ministered among the poor and vulnerable of Kentucky for many years, who has attempted to see real change, but frustrated with uh, the inability to see change. 
And he offhandedly said to me, I'm paraphrasing here, but he basically said to me, I'm glad you stayed. That would have been a loss for us. He said, people listen to you. People in power in this state listen to you. You can help me so much by leading and advocating in Kentucky in a way I simply can't. Now, whether his assessment of my influence is overstated or not, his words really hit home. Whatever influence I do have, I want to use for the good of my Kentucky neighbors. So our ministry is offering public theology and public strategy. Or to say it more simply, we are in the business of ideas and influence. But there is a third component needed, and I cannot overstate how important this is, and truly what I think makes what we're establishing a unique work. There's a lot of Christian thought leadership out there. There's a lot of Christian uh, strategic consulting out there. I think it's unique to combine the two, but still, much of what I've outlined isn't necessarily novel. But I'm convinced the missing piece in Christian public work is this third component, public theology and strategy for the common good of the commonwealth. We are unashamedly adopting an intentional, localized focus with our work. Wendell Berry, Kentucky's own Wendell Berry, I might add, we get to own him, has been an open critic of Christian thought and activism. And one of his main critiques is its lack of localism. Christian leaders tend to seek large, national, even global platforms. Now that's problematic in many respects, but an underappreciated problem is that it's simply not effective. You can become a celebrity, but you can't really get anything accomplished. And the reason, according to Barry, is that expansive Christian work requires a level of generalization and simplification that never meets the demands of local communities. So like I said earlier, I hope and pray that our public theology is a blessing to those outside Kentucky, but I as a public theologian cannot be thinking about other contexts when formulating my ideas. If I had to have in the back of my mind, how will this come across in New York or California or the United Kingdom, it would dramatically change the way I speak and write. Kentucky is its own culture with deeply held convictions, values, and so forth. In order to offer compelling ideas to Kentucky, I have to speak pointedly to Kentuckians. For example, Kentucky is a conservative state that has retained a low-grade form of Christian religiosity. And so my thought work needs to bear that in mind. How do I get conservatives to rethink conservatism? How do I get nominal Christianity to give way to devout Christianity? That's a totally different thought challenge than were I to be in a more progressive, secular context. So simply put, if our, if our public theology was aimed nationally, then I would miss Kentucky. My thoughts would be more generalized and simplified, as Wendell Berry warns against. But I don't have to do that. If my aim was greater notoriety, I would have to do that. But that's not my aim. I'm after the common good of our commonwealth. And so I'm free to be a prophetic witness here in Kentucky. And the same thing is true of our public strategy. Kentucky's needs are unique. If I had this grand delusion, and it would be delusional, to think that I could change America for the better, give me a break. Not only would that be silly, 
The greater tragedy is by focusing on that, I would be neglecting the very real kingdom concerns right in front of me. I will let others worry about America. I am fixated on Kentucky. And that localized focus makes change plausible. Do I have a messianic complex thinking that our our organization can fix Kentucky's ills? Of course not. Let me state up front that we are not coming at this with arrogant, grand illusions. But do I think that by focusing in on Kentucky, we can leave Kentucky better than we found it? Yes, I do. In the grand arc of Christ's redemption, we can do our small part in this little moment of time entrusted to us to make Kentucky look a little bit more like heaven. And so the final piece that this requires is a form of local indigenous focus. I am a Kentuckian. I'm from Kentucky. I love Kentucky. I know Kentucky. I am a Kentuckian through and through. And it's that indigenous positionality that I think uniquely qualifies me for our indigenous focus. So what does true change require? Three things. Compelling ideas, public theology, combined with capable influence, public strategy, all with a localized emphasis, the common good of the commonwealth. That's what we hope to accomplish by God's grace. Christ for Kentucky seeks to be a resource of public theology and strategy for the common good of the commonwealth. Mm